The theme I'd like to reflect on this afternoon is the truth of impermanence. Or, as I prefer to entitle this uh, theme, the uh, reality of living in rental accommodation. It is a fundamental, perhaps the fundamental aspect of Dharma teaching that we recognize the fact that things change, that things are impermanent. They do not last or continue in the form that they are currently to be found. The Buddha spoke of this as the elephant's footprint. It's a kind of a strange image or metaphor to give. And he said that the truth of change was the elephant's footprint because the elephant's footprint encompasses all other footprints. And the truth of change encompasses all truths in the relative world. This reality, this actuality that all which arises is subject to to passing. All that comes into existence ceases and passes from existence, comes to an end. This is understood in the Dharma teaching as dominating the world of things, as the elephant's footprint which encompasses all things of our world and of our lives. And so we could say that this human existence is somewhat like living in rental accommodation, borrowed accommodation. About, um, I think it was, I guess, a dozen years ago now, Catherine and I returned from where we'd been living in America, Insight Meditation Society, for a couple of years. And we came back to South Devon here to Gaia House, and we're looking for somewhere to live, but uh, it's rather poor sort of Dharma followers. We didn't have any money and we were very, very fortunate and uh, grateful to be offered a place to stay in the uh, nearby Sharpham um, estate. In fact, there's a rather large, uh, we'd have to say mansion house there and we were offered a wing to, to stay in for very small duties and uh, in return. And we're very grateful to receive that. And... Uh, Having been very graciously invited to take up residence in the wing of this rather lovely building, uh, about a year or so later, they just as graciously asked us if we could please leave. And it was kind of interesting. Okay, yeah, sure, we can do that. We did. And uh, interestingly, we moved through about three or four different places to live over the next um, several months. And then some friends of ours were buying a house, and in rather fortunate circumstances they were, due to the uh, kindness of their parents. They were buying a rather lovely house that had plenty of room for two couples and thought they'd like to live with some friends, invited us to come and stay with them. And uh, we lived together with our friends uh, for about a year and a half, and then one morning they asked us, very kindly, if we'd like to leave. And it was kind of like, hmm, this is interesting, isn't it? That experience of kind of having a place to live, somewhere to be, a home, it seems, that's been offered to us, we gratefully received, we were paying proper rent the second time round, but nonetheless, at some point, it comes to an end, and we said, sorry, 
You can't stay here any longer. This, uh, this human existence, this living with a body and a thinking mind, it's a temporary phenomenon. We don't necessarily uh, sort of have control over the duration of our tenancy here. The landlord is remarkably unpredictable. And at some point, our time will be over with regard to this. This home that we make in our mind and body, or so it seems. And the Buddha suggested and encouraged that his students, practitioners of the Dharma, should regularly reflect upon, consider, bring to mind, and take to heart this truth, that all that is mine, beloved and pleasing to me, I will be parted from this. Just that simple and clear. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing to me, I will be parted from this. It will happen to me. And we know this in a certain way. We understand that we will die, that others will die. Life is not forever. We can acknowledge that reality at a certain level and I think there's an appropriate and understandable at times sadness or grief that we might encounter in that recognition or in the actual experience of it, of that loss, of that which is near or dear to us. We're parted from it, whether by accident or by intentional choice of ourself or another or just simply by the passage of time and the inevitability of of ending, of a life, of ours or another. But although it's quite appropriate and understandable we might feel some sorrow or grief or really be touched by this experience or the truth that experience reflects, we are invited to consider if we really live our life with this understanding at the centre and the forefront of how we live. Because Often it's only when it's actually happening to us or about to that we suddenly get it. It's only when we see, uh, if we're so fortunate to have one share portfolio sort of cut in half by the random events of international economic policy or activity, and we see something that was substantial disappear. And it's been happening to a lot of people recently. I think, oh yeah, that's right, things change. But for so much of the time, the shock to us is because we've forgotten that or someone dear to us who we just assumed would be there. My sister just had a cancerous tumour removed from her, her body and it turned out to be a really nasty tumour. They think they got it or they believe they got it all but it's like you think, wow, she was fine two months ago. She didn't, I didn't know anything about that. And suddenly we realise we're confronted with the truth that things change. And it was the basis of the Buddha's search and his journey. It was what impelled him in his journey to that recognition, that encounter with that recognition of impermanence, of death which is one of the most convincing expressions of impermanence, 
the most compelling ways in which we encounter it. And he said to himself, why should I, who am subject to birth, aging, sickness and death, why should I pursue other things which are also subject to birth, aging, sickness and death? Would it not make more sense that being myself subject to birth, aging, sickness and death, I sought to realize, to discover, to understand that which is not subject to birth, aging, sickness and death. And with that recognition, with that resolve, he set out from the palace on his journey, which was to lead to his enlightenment, to his awakening, to his teaching, which to a very large degree leads to us sitting here. So we are part of that journey already. We are already influenced by this truth in the way that it's come to us. And we look and we see, we know this, it's not news to any of us. We see that things change. We see the weather, it's cold, it's warm, it's sunny, it's beautiful, it's miserable, however we experience it. We see our state of mind, sometimes we're light and relaxed, sometimes we feel tight or contracted, sometimes the mind is clear and sharp. Sometimes it is so dull and dense that we wonder if we could ever again be mindful of anything. And yet, sometime later it is. We see our experience change. But do we live accordingly? Do we really live this? I had quite a striking uh, reminder of how easy it is to forget this. Um, and I'd like to share this story because uh, it really touched me quite powerfully. It was um, several years ago now. Um, we were, I was teaching a, a week-long retreat in June. I think with Christina. And um, I was packing my bags to come over before for the seven or eight days that it was going to be. And we'd had this glorious summer weather in June. It had been sunny and hot and lovely and I'd been really enjoying it. You know how rare it is here, this country. And, uh, well, most of you probably do anyway. And... Um, I was actually rather concerned as I started packing because I realized I didn't have sort of very many tidy clothes for warm weather. Like coming to teach retreat, one tries to wear reasonably tidy clothes, not sort of things I slouch around in home in, at home in. And I had a few T-shirts and things, but nothing that I felt like was tidy enough. And I was getting really worried. I thought, oh my gosh, what am I going to do this whole week? I'm going to cook. I've got all these warm shirts for cold Devon weather, you know, and uh, cold English weather. I don't have anything light. I was really wondering and worried and concerned about how I was going to cope with this week. And I eventually got together whatever I thought I needed or had and could bring and came over to teach the retreat. And the next day, it started raining. It got really cold. I went back up to my bag to look and I didn't have a sweater or a jumper. It was like, what was I thinking? It's obvious to me what I was thinking. I was thinking that really hot weather was going to keep happening for the whole remaining coming week. So much so that I was worried that I couldn't cope with a whole week of sunny weather. And even more, tragically, that I failed to bring any warm clothes. Fortunately, it's only eight miles to home, so it didn't take me long to go back and get some more clothes. But, do we see that tendency in our own minds? Do you see it here? I imagine there are opportunities where you might. The Buddha said, 
that one of the major misperceptions or delusions we labor under is that that which is impermanent, we see it as permanent. We imagine and we act as if it will continue the way it is now. In so many ways, we conceive and engage with our experience from that perspective. Even though you know just as well as I know, and I spend plenty of time telling people all about it, and yet still we see how we forget that truth. And we see when our meditation experience is delightful, sweet and enjoyable, and it's like, finally, this is what I've been waiting for. It's here. I've arrived. It's going to be like this now. And we start to take hold of it as if this experience is somehow where we're going to be for the rest of our retreat. And we're imagining, you know, maybe staying on for another week or month or year or possibly we've made plans for ordaining and traveling to Asia. You know, retreat practice is so good. And it's like we forgot that this experience is happening now and there's no guarantee it will be happening later. All the grasping that arises because of our imagined hope that things could be forever. And likewise in that situation when we realize that actually that rather sweet meditation experience we're having has just been overwhelmed by a bunch of thinking, reactivity, grasping and essentially, you know, we could say defilement. And oh no, look, I've blown it. There it was, I had it, it's gone, I'll probably never get it back. This is hopeless, I can't do it. I'm not even going to stay to the end of the retreat, I'm going home now. You know, I cannot stand another day of this horrible thing. And again, in that wish to escape from or get rid of the experience, we've imagined that this particular state of mind, maybe more agitated or reactive, is somehow going to continue. But it's not. It doesn't. We see that again and again. So we could reflect on the words of the French philosopher Gaillot, I don't know if I pronounce his name correctly, but he said, if we know, but we do not act accordingly, then we know imperfectly, like we don't really know. If our action is not expressing our knowledge, we don't really know it, though we might think we do. And with regard to the truth of change, so far as we see that our action is not expressing that understanding, we have to not assume we have to recognize and not assume that we already know this you might be hearing these teachings and i wouldn't blame you for thinking oh my gosh i've heard this before i suspect you have you may even heard it you know not so long ago and yet have we heard it all the way have we let in what it means practice of insight meditation has its transformative power. Because in the engagement with our experience directly, immediately, and the actuality of its arising, its being known, that we can see what's happening. And we can transform that misperception, and others also, but correcting the misperception that we're attempting to live our life from And that as a result of which, because it's a misperception, we keep coming into conflict with, colliding with, struggling with life. Because we're relating to it from not a clear and accurate understanding of how it is. And so the 
the transformation or the journey of insight meditation is the movement from blindness. Avidya, or ignorance as it's sometimes translated, but I find that a rather more pejorative word than is useful. It doesn't mean we're stupid. It means we don't see clearly. We don't see clearly. The transformation from blindness to wisdom, when we see what's true. Wisdom is that seeing which enables us to live our life in accordance with what is true. And blindness is simply the condition in which that is obscured. So we engage with our experience and practice in order to see clearly and truly, in order to see through the distortion or the misperception, in order to ground what we might know intellectually in the very cells of our body, in the very core of our being. So that it becomes the base and the root and the foundation from which our life proceeds, from which our action and our engagement is founded or is founded on. So how does it come that something so obvious that's going on all around us, that all of us have heard about before, talked about before, probably all of us have told other people about it before, and yet we still miss it? How does that happen? Misperception of any sort essentially arises through not carefully examining what's going on, through not looking carefully, through not seeing deeply enough into, but somehow buying or believing our first surface impressions. So an image that I find useful for understanding this with regard to impermanence You can just imagine this if you would. If you were driving in a car on a long, straight road and you're looking out the front windscreen, if you look at what's on the horizon in front of you as you're driving towards it, even at 60 or 70 miles an hour, which is quite a considerable speed, if you look at what's on the horizon way in front of you, there's nothing really much changing out there. It just sits there in front of you not doing much. And you can't even really perceptibly see it getting larger or coming closer. It's just there. Now imagine likewise that you were to look out the rear window of the car while doing this on a long straight. Now I don't do this if you're driving, obviously. Um, but if you were to look out the rear window and keep your eyes, what would you see? You'd also see something that isn't really changing. It's kind of fixed. It's like the image out the rear windscreen is just what's there on a long straight. And then what happens if you look out the side window? at the side of the road or side of the road what happens if you do that driving along the road at 50 60 70 miles an hour what you see is a flickering blur of images that you can't actually see anything specifically or focus on in order to distinguish any particularity at all it just flickers and blurs as you attempt to focus on again don't do this while you're driving And this is what goes on in our minds. Most of the time we're focusing on either the past or the future. And when we're focusing on the past, it's like a fragment, it's like an image or a a very limited construction of what we remember rather than the total complex of experience that was what happened in the past. And it's it's a fragment, it's it's an image and it's fixed. It doesn't change because we just remember that's what happened. It's not exactly what happened, because if you ask five people who were there when something happened, if 
You only need to actually ask two people. But for sure, if you ask five, you see how many different versions of what happened people have each retained. So the image is not the same as the actual. But the image is fixed. It's solid. It's like it was that. And if we're dwelling in the past, it seems solid and fixed. That's what it was. Likewise, if we think about the future, because it doesn't exist, all we can do is project an image, imagine something based on our past images. And again, it's something fixed, it's solid, it's not alive, it's not real. So it's just fixed, it's not going anywhere, it's not doing anything, it's not in the process of unfolding in the way that life is. So it's an image in the front of us that we're looking towards called the future, and it's fixed. So it appears that the things we're spending most of our time paying attention to, past and future, when we're in that unconscious mode of being that most of us will be, unless we have the intention to practice and be present, that what we're encountering seem to be things that are fixed. And what's around us, before us and in front of us, is permanence. It was like that. It will be like this. And so that sense of perpetuity, of continuity, of substantial and unchangingness is reinforced by the habit of living in the past and the future. And as we, as we do here, give our attention to the present, looking at where the car actually is in relationship to the road, and it is flickering. If we start to look at what's going on right here, and we notice this, and the Buddha said, notice this. Don't just sort of stare at it in a sort of a glazed, uninterested way. He said, be interested in what you're seeing here. Because it is transformative to see this truly and deeply. When we give attention to the present moment, we cannot help but see how much it's changing, how quickly it's changing, how inexorably, unstoppably it is changing. And as we're confronted with that, as we are in contact with that, as we are affected by that truth, it starts to work on that deep attachment we have to the view of permanence. The wish and the hope and the prayer we might have for things to somehow settle into a fixed, reliable, predictable, continuous condition. Despite the fact that they haven't ever yet done so. We still wish and hope and yearn that maybe they could. So long as it was a good one, then that would be great. A good condition that could finally become permanent. So, we're asked to examine our experience to see how it is changing. How the breath changes. No one breath is like the next or the previous. How the body changes. How it's comfortable and energized some days, other times it's dull and heavy or aching and stiff. We didn't do anything, it's just like that. And the mind, how quickly the mind changes. Flickering, flowing, fluxing. And of course everything around us too. This sense, this being in contact with the experience of change. Although we might be interested in it and we might hear that injunction from the Buddha, from Dharma teachings, it says look at this, see this. Really take this on board. Although we might be genuinely interested in it, we might also have some resistance or some disinclination, some very deeply rooted 
unwillingness to let it in because it unsettles us. It's scary or it's unnerving to really contemplate how all things are dissolving, how all moments keep dissolving. To really let that in is scary. It's like, I don't think I want to be in that condition. So we attempt to solidify or rigidify our experience by grasping or by resisting, as if to create something fixed and solid through that process. And so there's this attempt to create security, to find permanence in the world through things or relationships or possessions, through controlling what's happening, demanding it to be a certain way. And we can notice in our body the effect of this. It's tightness, it's rigidity, it's hardness. And it's really uncomfortable, not to mention exhausting, maintaining it. And that's something we encounter too at times. The effect in the body and likewise, of course, the mind of our urge, an urgent need to fix and solidify, to take hold of experience. And so we invest in circumstances and experiences and possessions and relationships and all the things we could do, views and opinions, all the things we take hold of. The very act of taking hold gives the illusion that something can be solid and fixed and permanent because we're kind of in a relationship to of gripping onto it, attaching to it, and the rigidity of that mimics what we imagine permanence would feel like, like solid fixed, unchanging. Though even our grasping can't sustain, interestingly enough, and rather fortunately, even grasping is subject to impermanence. Even this too falls away. And all the more quickly when we see the suffering in it. (coughs) And this hope that we have that something will offer security, something will provide us a defense, a protection, from the truth of impermanence. Something will somehow guard us from the loss of all things. This fantasy, totally understandable as it is, is nonetheless a fantasy. There is not something we can take hold of that will give us that. Everything we take hold of, if we do it with the wish to gain security or permanence from it, will be a disappointment to us. That's not to say there aren't many wholesome, beneficial and wonderful things in this world to develop, to cultivate, to bring into being and sustain and nourish, whether in terms of inner work, of cultivating wholesome qualities and experiences, capacities of heart and mind, and equally in the world of having a home and having clothes and relationships and all these things which are useful and can be profoundly supportive and beneficial. But understanding they don't last forever. We can relate to them differently. We don't have to take hold of them. Helen Keller, who was uh, blind and deaf and yet lived a remarkable life, she once said, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist, 
in nature, nor do the, the children of mankind as a whole experience it. In the long run, avoiding danger is no safer than outright exposure. Life is either a glorious adventure or it is nothing. Remarkable words. Life is either a glorious adventure or it is nothing. To live life to the full in the very recognition of its fluidity, of its changing, transforming, reconfiguring nature. To live life in the spirit of that is to also begin to see that impermanence, change, is not something that we have to regard as all bad news or something we need to be afraid of. In fact, impermanence is the basis of some of the most important things that we treasure. It's the basis of all beauty. I spoke a little of beauty the other day in the questions and answers. But beauty is inevitably connected with impermanence. See the leaves with the sun shining through them and the colours. We talk about the change at this time of year. The change of the leaves. And we see how the, the changing of the leaves, the dying of the leaves in fact, they go through this time of yellows and oranges and golds and reds and how lovely that is. Or with the sunset. You know, we might see a beautiful sunset. And we think it's beautiful. But imagine... If those beautiful oranges or golds or purples or whatever it might be, if they just stayed the same, we'd go, it's beautiful, wow, what a sunset. A real sunset changes all the time. But if it was just the same, imagine, like, wow, that's nice, yeah. Well, yeah, I guess it's quite nice. A few minutes later, well, yeah, nice, well, what's for tea? It would lose the capacity to touch us if it didn't change. Likewise, a flower. The very fact that flowers don't last forever is what makes them beautiful. You know, they can make a plastic flower these days, with more plastic and cloth and material and stuff, and you really can't tell, you know, two foot distance that it's a real one or not. You can't tell because it looks exactly the same. And yet the only thing that tells you it's not a flower and that maybe you get a sense that it doesn't touch you in the same way is actually it's because it's not dying, because it's perfect, because there's no curled up leaf or browning edge or crumpled petal within it. Impermanence is what gives the sense of beauty to things. And not just beauty, but space comes from change. Imagine if everybody who'd ever been on retreat here at Guy House was still here. Imagine how much room there would not be in this meditation hall. If everyone's retreat that began and they enjoyed it so much they decided to continue, we're all still here, there wouldn't have been room for any of us. The ending of things keeps creating the possibility, the space and the opportunity for new things. We understand that. Of course we do. This isn't news to you. But to understand that this is what permanence brings. Sorry, impermanence brings. And it also brings preciousness. If our life was forever, we would not treat it with respect. 
in the way that we do. If things were actually reliable, we would not treasure them and value them as we do. For many years, Catherine and I, when we when we would part, we would always say, I hope I see you the next time. Even if we were just one of us was going out to get a loaf of bread, I hope I see you again. Because it was true, we would hope that we would see the other again. Occasionally something would happen, we might not wish so much, but mostly that's not the case. Relationships being what they are. But that sense of just stopping and feeling in that moment, it's not getting into some playing with, oh, maybe this person isn't coming back, but really letting oneself feel the preciousness. Oh, wow. If I remember that it's not to take for granted this, return, reconnection, then one feels that sense of what is precious, alive, right there. And it has that aliveness because there is no guarantee. And in a monastery in, uh, that I like to visit in uh, West Sussex, Chitta Veveka, well, Chithurst Monastery, Chitta Veveka, it's like the uh, secluded or the silent heart. It's a beautiful place. And uh, there's, a, there's a tree, a small tree, and underneath it there's a number of plaques, that are obviously memorial plaques. There's a plaque in one place that always I go to visit when I go there because it, it touches me so deeply. And... On it, it has a name and a date and a poem. And the poem reads, if I can remember, The cherry trees cover the hillsides with their blossoms for but a few days. Any longer, and we would not treasure them so. Underneath is the name Little Sam and a single date. And the sense of the preciousness of a life that was just for one day and how the the preciousness of it is made so clear by that. It doesn't take it away. It doesn't mean it wasn't valuable and meaningful and everything that it was for those people. Desperately painful as that must be to encounter. It seems something remarkably powerful and beautiful and true of what is precious being revealed in that. What it is to encounter impermanence and change directly and really feel into it. Because it will change our hearts, it will change our minds, it will change our lives to the degree that we really let it in. And one of the ways that it affects us, which is very interesting, is if we really understand that this is how things are. We're living in rental accommodation. This is a borrowed thing. It's not something we own and have control of and are able to determine its outcome or its duration. We're not given that opportunity. We didn't ask to come in. We're not in charge of when we leave. If we rent a house, it's really interesting how we relate to that compared to if we own it. When we moved in with our friends or the second of the two places that we eventually had to leave, 
was very interesting. It was a lovely house in the country, four bedrooms, cootie outside, five acres, or maybe more. Anyway, lovely, lovely house. It was like house of my dreams. And very interestingly, Catherine and I went in, we were like, wow, what a lovely house. Our friends went in, what a lovely house. Let's move that wall. Let's do this over here. Let's change that over there. It's like when we have a sense of it being mine, we immediately start thinking of how we can fix it or improve it. When we relate to this mind and this body as mine, we immediately get concerned with trying to fix and improve it. It seems to go with a sense of ownership. So, well, it's mine, I can do what I like with it. So I will try and make it a better place to live. Now, again, nothing wrong with renovating a house. Nothing wrong with cultivating healthy and wholesome qualities of body and mind. But when it's coming from that sense of wanting to improve because it's mine and it should be better than this, it's like we've forgotten that this is a tenancy. We've forgotten that this is not forever. And we've forgotten that maybe it's okay like this. Because it's just for now. If it's just for now, it's all right. In meditation, when things seem difficult, or in our lives, when things seem difficult. Remembering that it's just now makes such a difference. It's not forever. It's not for the rest of your life, or the rest of your sitting, or the rest of your retreat. It's for now. That's how it is now. When we remember this, the need and the urge and the compulsion to have to fix it when it's difficult drops away to a remarkable degree. And we find we can just be. Oh yeah, because actually, if it's just going to be like this for now, well I can do this, because I am already. I'm already here. It's here. This difficult condition and me are coexisting right now. So it's obviously possible. The thought that I can't do it for a whole sitting, or I can't do it for a whole day, or a whole retreat, or the rest of my life, that's not in accord with reality. Except that, of course, it's true, you can't do it for the rest of the sitting or the rest of your life because that doesn't have any existence. It's just now that it's happening. It's just now you have to meet the condition. So being able to make space for the challenging, for the difficult, to allow them to be there in our lives. What it means... is to really practice seeing this transience, this impermanence. To contemplate it, as the Buddha said, to contemplate the impermanence of phenomena, of experience. See them coming. Watch them go. See them return. And know, as you're contemplating, that that's what's happening. And as it happens to this breath, to this word, to this moment. So it happens to all things. In the Diamond Sutra from the uh, Mahayana scriptures, there's a stanza that speaks to this, it speaks to how to live your life. It says, Thus you should live, sorry, thus you should look upon this fleeting world. A drop of dew a bubble in a stream, a flickering lantern, a phantom, and a dream. In fact, it says more than that. It's, if I remember, 
A drop of dew, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream. A flickering lant, lantern, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud. A mirage and a dream. And that sort of one after another, those images of impermanence, of something that bursts into existence and disappears. They're a drop of dew, a flash of lightning. Or any momentary experience. As we let ourselves really feel the, it's like the, the thinness of the fabric of what's happening. How so easily it's bursting and dissolving out like bubbles. Foam. It's just foam. The solidity of it starts to soften. Starts to dissolve for us. And the wisdom of change can start to inform how we live our lives. How we meet our experience. Because the wisdom of change essentially says to us, don't try and hold on, things will pass. And it says to us, don't resist things that are coming, they'll move on by themselves. That's the implication. That's how the understanding of impermanence supports us to let go. Letting go is where freedom comes from, is the foundation of liberating our heart and mind. And so to engage with our experience, both the sweet and the lovely, equally as the challenging and the scary from this. And the truth of impermanence doesn't suggest then that we don't engage wholeheartedly with experience. Well, it's not going to be here very long. I might as well not bother with it. I might as well ignore that thing. I don't want to get involved with that. It's not going to be here long enough to be worth my while. It's not about somehow a standoffish, distant, disconnected way. In fact, with regard to those things that are lovely and delightful, it's really important to connect. And uh, on this, uh, William Blake said rather beautifully, He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. And that sense of the binding ourselves to a joy. It's like if we try and take hold of something delightful, it destroys the winged life. The, the, the freedom, the lightness, the uplift in the joy is crushed by our taking hold of it. Have you ever had that experience of something lovely and then the sense of, I've got to keep it comes in? And in the very coming in to keep hold of it, the fear and the grasping that drives that attachment, that which we were trying to hold is gone, crushed and lost already. And yet, when we can just allow ourselves to be touched, to kiss the joy as it flies, beautiful expression, it's just like a momentary but intimate contact with just what's there. It's to live in eternity's sunrise. As Blake is speaking of the, the dawn of the timeless. He speaks of eternity's sunrise, the dawn of the timeless. When we're simply intimate in that way, with a moment of something beautiful. She who binds herself to a joy 
does the winged life destroy. She who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. It's the whole talk really just there. And likewise with the beautiful and the delightful to learn to really meet the challenges, to open our hearts to that dimension of life that is not easy. To understand that it is of the nature of life as much as is that which delights us. And it is of the nature of impermanence. To let that inform how we relate to it. Particularly with regard to the emotional life, it's so important to learn this, to understand this. That when we encounter, and we do at times in life, and certainly at times on retreat, encounter places of difficulty, places of fear, places of sadness, of longing, of loneliness, of confusion, of doubt, of regret, of jealousy, of rage, of terror, of depression, and many others besides. When we encounter those places to understand that we're only asked to meet them just as they are for this moment. And to see them too as expressions of our life, a remarkable thing it is, that we can meet anything at all. And Khalil Gibran and the Prophet, he said of this, If you could keep your mind in wonder at the daily miracle of your life, your sorrow would not seem less wondrous than your joy. And you would accept the seasons of your heart just as you have always accepted the seasons that pass over your land. Again, beautiful image. Sense of the seasons of the heart. Yes, we encounter summer and also winter. At times it's delightful. At times it's really hard. And harsh within, it seems. And yet seeing that the whole process is alive and moving. Emotion. Motion. It's in motion. It's moving. We experience it as movement within. Of energy, of feeling, of sensation. Of laughter or of tears. It's all movement. Emotion is movement. And just as the seasons upon our land. We might wish for summer to last a year, but it can't be there always. Summer dies back into autumn and things fade. And winter give, sorry, autumn gives way to winter and the harshness, the cold, the, the seeming loss or ending of life in that. And yet out of that very condition in which things have died it seems comes new life and spring bursts forth again and again unstoppably. So too in our hearts. And we would not imagine that spring wouldn't follow winter. Nor would we start to believe that somehow should somehow continue forever. Because as spring bursts forth in its energy and aliveness and then blooms into the fullness and richness of summer, it's unsustainable. And it begins to fade and die back. So too the life of our heart. And sometimes it's summer. Of course, enjoy. Get a good tan, you know. 
when things are delightful within, let ourselves be there for that. But when it's winter, to really extend to ourselves as much warmth as we can, as much kindness as we can. It's not our fault that we encounter this any more than it's our fault that it's winter right now. Or close to winter at least. It's just this is what happens. So understanding life is in the process of transformation. We can align ourselves with what is true. We can begin to let go of our habit of holding on and resisting. And as we do so, and to the degree that we are able to do this, supported by our understanding of impermanence, our experiential recognition of its truth, as we begin to let go, we start to see and sense that there is more to what's happening than just what we have encountered and struggled with. There is more to what is here than just that which is born and dies. Many years ago now, I was... uh, practicing in a monastery in, uh, in Budgaya, the place of the Buddha's enlightenment. And I was on a retreat there for some time and very much enjoying the opportunity to practice and uh, much as you are here sitting and walking through the days. And uh, it was January and uh, just as cold as it is here, although things don't get quite as cold in India as or in that part of India as here. But uh, it was pretty cold nonetheless. And I was really enjoying, among other things, the... Uh, the small puppies in the monastery. Having been there the year before also and uh, gone back, one of the great delights of the, uh, the monasteries in Asia can be the, the animals that live there. They, monasteries really established as many things, for places for practice, obviously, but equally as a, something of a sanctuary in the communities for, for both people and creatures in need of sanctuary. And so in the monasteries you inevitably find chickens and you know, cats and dogs and sometimes pigs and donkeys and cows and you know, sort of retired or elderly people who don't have any family, all sorts turn up. But anyway, these puppies, I was really enjoying them. They would just be so full of life, so full of energy. Though, of course, sometimes, you know, struggling. It wasn't an easy situation for them, but they would just dance, it seemed, through our day. And I would just be filled with joy at their presence when walking meditation, and they'd come running up and running to your feet, just, you know, to see if you're really mindful or just trying to look good and, you know, see if they could trip you up or put your plate down in the grass and they'd rush up and help you clean it, you know, even if you hadn't finished eating yet. All these ways they were obviously trying to help out. Um, and I just would just be filled with this love every time I would see them. It was such a sweet experience. And then after I'd been there about a couple of weeks, I think, I had this shocking realisation that I thought they were the same puppies that were there last year. And it was shocking to me that I'd been believing for this whole period of time I'd been there, that they were the same puppies. When obviously, clearly, they were not. They could not be the same creatures. Those creatures had grown up. Not all of those little ones from last year would have survived. But they certainly were not these little things running about being puppies. But I saw something, I understood something that was really very clear from this. And it was like the puppies change. They grow up, they die, they do what they do. 
Puppies change. None of these puppies are the same as the puppies that were there before. I realise that. But puppy nature is unchanging. What it was that was animating those beings, what it was that was shining through their eyes and through their activity, was exactly the same as what I had encountered the previous year. There was something of what was there that had not changed at all. Though that was not the bodies or the minds of those creatures. So in Dharma practice, we are asked to consider what might be discovered if we are not so fixated on trying to fix or control or manipulate the things that arise and pass. If we're not seeking within them, within those experiences or situations or circumstances or relationships, if we're not seeking within the flux and flow of our inner experience to find something that we can rely upon as permanent and reliable. If we're not looking to find that within that realm which cannot offer it, then we find there is no real other thing to do but let go of all that holding which makes no sense any longer. And allow, as we release the holding, allow ourselves, allow our being to settle and gently, we could say, slip beneath the surface of things. To see, to realize, to know, to be touched by what the Buddha spoke of as the changeless, the deathless. That which is not subject to arising and passing, in which the resolution of our journey is revealed. That to which we cannot put words. But do not need to. This Our practice invites us to discover right here where we are. Let's sit together for a minute or two.
May we all, through our practice, come to be at peace amidst the ever-changing joys and sorrows, all of life's rich movement. And may we deeply know and understand the truth that is unchanging. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.